This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Roland Martin is one of the most successful bass fishermen of our time. Roland's ability to read water began at a very early age, eventually achieving him multiple tournament wins and three Hall of Fame inductions. Roland is the host of the Fishing with Roland Martin series and was one of the first bass anglers to promote catch and release fishing in the 70s. I met with Roland in Orlando to hear more of his story. My dad was a government engineer hydraulic engineer and he'd move different parts of the country and so I was actually born in Albany, New York but we moved out of there when I was just like a a year old so I have no recollection of that. Uh, We moved to St. Louis and I remember St. Louis at at three years old because I ran over the next door neighbor and I got spanked for running him over with my tricycle so uh, and then I remembered the cockroaches on the on on this driveway right outside so those they were the two poignant Memories of a three-year-old, and then, but then I moved to Iowa City, Iowa, when I was four, and I remember that real well because I built a battleship in the backyard with the little, little spools and bobbins and <laughs> and little toothpicks, and, I, and that was a great battleship. And then uh, also, my father caught me when I was uh, he had a pistol, and I'd gotten some ammunition out of the uh, pistol, and I was banging on it with a hammer. Oh. That was that was real good. <laughs> Sounds dangerous. <laughs> but luckily, I, I, I survived that. And then at six, we moved to Laurel, Maryland. Oh. And uh, he got my de- my father headed up a bunch of research for the geological survey. He was on big projects like uh, developing the Tom Bigby Waterway. It's a huge waterway in, in, in the central part of the U.S. that runs through uh, Alabama and Tennessee. 
and uh, he had big projects like that that he that he did. So uh, he was actually in in the, the University of Maryland in the engineering department, and he was I don't know how the government had had a division there, but the U.S. government had a division in the engineering department at the university, and uh, part of it was for research for concrete strengths and you know strength of design stuff that that was so important because they, they built reservoirs and also big bridges and stuff for the it was all under corps of engineer auspices as well <clears throat> you were born in 1940 40. in in that time were they stocking dams and reservoirs with bass well bass is a is a natural species of you know it's an indigenous species to all of all the u.s and so every time they build a dam whether they wanted to or not, it filled with bass. Okay, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a kind of a byproduct. But uh, my father never fished. Mm. And so when I was finally about 10 or 12 years old, he'd have a project and he'd say, son, why don't you hold the, uh, the tr- um, we have to take surveys and I got to hold the rod, you know, the, the elevation rods, you know, how they do surveys, they have... Yeah, like a not transit. the fishing rod, but like a, like a pole. Well, it, is, it has numbers on it. It has the elevation numbers, so they yeah. can get, see what the elevations are for everything. So he'd get, have me go across the creek, and I'd have to hold the, the elevation pole, and he'd have to take a transit. And, and then uh, and in the meantime, I'd be down in these creeks and stuff. And I'd ask my father, I'd say, Dad, what's going to happen to this bridge? Or what's going to happen to that little house right there? He said, oh, it's all going to be underwater. It's all going to be filled up. So my fervent mind said, wow, what a great place. That house would be a great place for bass to live. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Ten years old, you think. So, but what that did, and by the time I started fishing seriously, at, say at 15 years old, I remembered these contour maps that my father had. Now, this is way, way ahead of all the other anglers and all the other fishermen around the world, the fact that at 15 years old, I could take a contour map, a government quadrangle, quadrant map, professional map, and I could read the contours and understand all the symbols and where the house foundations were and where the ridges are. At 15 years old, I could envision that lake and the bottom of the lake and all the entities in the lake at 15, because I'd been doing that with my dad. And I could see, in fact, when I went in the military, all the overground, I, I went through OCS and became an officer, but part of it was mapping and doing map work, and I was just a whiz. I never got caught. We never, I, you know, they'd send us off and have uh, paratroopers chasing us through the woods and, you know, all these kind of things. In the military, I always, I always escaped everybody because I could <laughs> read a map so good. And so, uh, and so now, before we had GPS, before we had the good modern maps that are on the GPS programs, we didn't have those kind of things. We had maps from the government. I'm talking 30, 40 years ago. And we'd start looking at things like structure, like an underwater island, like a, like a saddle, like a creek channel bend, and all the really good structure features that really hold fish. And I could look at a map and just in seconds just interpret five or six perfect spots. Just, boom, there's there's five or six places i got to check out. Where more, Normally, people struggle with that. It's something just it's foreign to them. They can't look at a contour map and see anything. It just is natural. I can look at any contour map and instantly just point out dozens of neat, neat things to try fish. Well, that gave me a big advantage because growing up, there were all kind of programs, like Sports of Field had a program, a big bass program for Maryland, and I was in Maryland at the time, and, and any bass over six pounds got a citation. So I thought that was cool. So the first couple of years, every time we'd catch a six-pound bass, we'd fill out all the paperwork and we'd get a little button 
would wear. You know, it's like a status symbol. And I was 18 years old, and I had five or six buttons here, and five or you know, it was like, how many buttons you have? Oh, you've caught more fish than I have. You know. <laughs> well, anyway, I finally gave up on that. And this one guy, Lewis Sullivan, who was my buddy, he had the most buttons ever. I don't know how he had a couple hundred. Yeah. And when I met Homer Circle for the first time, I was then guiding at Santee Cooper, and, I, and he asked me just offhandedly, he says, Do, did I know Lewis Sullivan? I said, sure, he's my fishing buddy. I got him started in bass fishing in Maryland. He says, well, you know, he holds the record for having the most citations from Sports Field. I said, yeah, I know. He and I started the program together, but I quit collecting buttons because I just thought it was a little bit too vain, you know. Okay. <laughs> and so and Lewis is great. He said, do you think we could call Lewis and find out more about, you know, what, what his motivations are in, in fishing? I said, yeah, but he's not very helpful. And he said, why that? I, you know, this is outdoor writer, Homer Circle, really big, big time writer. I said, well, he's real secretive and he likes to hold secrets. I said, however, I see the future of my sport and as a professional fisherman, I see sharing information is, is going to have to be a big deal. He said, I don't want to share anything. I'm not going to tell anybody anything. So anyway, Homer called this guy, Louis Sullivan. And I was there at Santee. And Louis, I introduced myself. Hey, hey, Louis, hey, hey, Homer Circle wants to talk to you. He's a leading sports writer for Sports Field. He wants to ask you a few questions about how you've caught your fish over the years. He says, I'm not going to talk about anything. I'm not going to give any of my secrets away. <laughs> and then I realized right then the secret of outdoor success is sharing the secrets. And so at that point, when I saw how negative he was and how he wouldn't share any of his information and how open I am, and I'm, I'm talking about how to do things, and I, consequently, after after a couple of years at Santee, I developed this pattern fishing technique. And that's mm. kind of the the biggest thing that I do is, is I'm, I'm known for my pattern technique. Where I, where I look at the exact set of water and cover conditions in any lake or river or body of water, and I try to identify the, the depth, the cover, the structure, the water temperatures, the water clarities, and all these things and put it together in some kind of form so that I can duplicate good places to fish. Like if I find them here on this one spot, the pattern is by a stomp on a point by the wind and it's a certain clarity and a certain temperature, I can theoretically go across the lake, find another point, where the wind's blowing the same way, same water clarity, same depth, same stomp, and find another fish. So that's the pattern concept. Which was super, that yeah. was new back then. Well, it wasn't so new. It was just that people hadn't thought of all the, like, water temperature. They didn't think it that that important. They didn't think uh, oxygen levels being that uh, much of a deal. They didn't think that pH had anything to do with anything. They didn't think that that water clarity had had, had all that importance. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of things they just didn't think that was important enough. Mm -hmm. And so I put it all together and said, everything's pretty important. You just have to list it all, list, list all the conditions present for this fish. If you, if you figure out everything about that environment and duplicate it, theoretically, you can find another fish. So, you know, that was my, my whole thought pattern. And did you figure a lot of this out? Because we just jumped ahead a little bit. But you, oh, yeah. were, you were guiding. You were a guide. Yeah, I was there. By that time, I was 20-something years old. I was in the military for a long time. And guiding at Santee Cooper, which is adjacent to the Fort Jackson installation, military base. Was that helping you figure out the pattern fishing? Yeah. That, I really learned my ABCs at Santee Cooper. It's a big 190,000-acre reservoir. And uh, and I and I, I looked at, at, at all the—well, they had striped bass. They had, they had big catfish. They had largemouth bass, of course. And so I pattern fished. I made a map. It was really funny. 
And, and this map, I sold it. I was really, really successful. And, and, and I, I talked about all these seasonal areas and lily pad places and, and patterns on the riprap and patterns on the cypress trees. And I had all these secret places and all these secret things. And all my buddies came to me. And they, I actually, I got in a fist fight one time because he said, you're telling us, you're telling everybody all our secrets. You know, you can't do that. And I said, no, I'm trying to become a professional fisherman and we have to share information. That's just part of the deal. Well, they couldn't see that. I had more trouble with my friends and constituents because, you know, I, I gave away all the secrets. Mm. But In magazines? Were you- and then I, I, I wrote a lot with on Fishing Facts. I was a staff writer for them. I did a lot of work with, oh, Earl Shelsby and some of the outdoor writers, uh, Lefty Cray and I don't know, different ones for Sports Afield. And I did work with, uh, I was a contributing editor to in a lot of magazines, and, and I actually did cover shots on, on Sports of Field and, and Field and Stream as well. So this is when you, you knew you wanted to be a pro. Were you out of the military at this point? I was out of the military. I, I'd, I'd gotten pretty good with uh, single-lens single reflex ca- cameras, and I got into bigger cameras, bigger formatted uh, House of Blood cameras and things like that, and I, I became pretty good at setups on, on, on photography, and I actually sold thousands and thousands of dollars worth of cover shots oh, wow. to, to many of the magazines. Was being a professional angler a thing back then? Well, that was a funny thing. My f- mother was a school teacher. My father had a doctorate in engineering, and when I started off in college, I was in engineering, and I, I didn't like it, so I switched majors, and everybody's mad at me, and so I'm a black sheep now. I'm not going to be another engineer because dad's father was an engineer, and his grandfather was an engineer, and blah, blah, blah. And mother said, well, you're not going to be anything professional. What do you want to do? I said, I want to become a fisherman, an outdoorsman. Well, this horrified them. (laughs) These are educated people looking at a career. Yeah. And they they both said, there's zero career in the outdoors. You can't be a guy that's the lowest form of of existence in the world and no status to that at all. And so I kept trying to prove myself. I said, I really don't think so. About the time... When I was really, really moving forward in my fishing career, I had the opportunity to go live with them down in Brazil because he had a job with the AID program. Uh, that's the Alliance for International Development that President Kennedy set up. And he was a lead uh, engineer for the Brazilian government building reservoirs. And I went down and lived with him for a year, and I taught school at the, at the American School in Recife. I'd, I'd gotten my degree from University of Maryland at the time. So anyway, I went down, and we... Uh, got to be friends again because I'd been gone out of the family for five or six years through the military and, and, and through college. <laughs> they said, well, maybe he's going to be something. But anyway, I still wanted to become an outdoors person. So we got to be pretty good friends. Coming back from that Brazilian trip, we were in Europe, traveling through Europe, and we were in a fatal car wreck, and I lost mom and dad. So anyway, that was the end of that. But the, the funny thing and the funny psychological thing that happened to me at the time was I hadn't proven myself. I hadn't I hadn't been a success yet. I was still about black sheep in their eyes, okay? And so now they're gone, and my career started rocketing. It took off. I'd met Ray Scott in the Bass Angler Sportsman Society, and I saw the opportunities of trying to use that as a springboard of opportunity. I saw how to win a tournament. I saw how to parlay that win into, into, into success with television, for example. And so all these things started happening, and I became a success. And as I think about it, the driving force was I'm trying to prove to my parents, who have always thought I was going to be a black sheep failure, that I am a success. 
even my sister, she graduated valedictorian in her class, and she's always considered me just, you know, that I wasn't going to be much anything. <laughs> and so, and I just re- realized about five or six years ago when she says, you're the most successful f- family member we've ever had. <laughs> you know, so it's like, you know, it took a long time to, 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 get, to get the status from me being an outdoorsman and become a successful outdoorsman. It was my driving force was trying to prove to my dead parents, in this case, that you know, I could be a success. I mean, to be, were you the sole survivor in that crash? No, my aunt was in the crash as well, and she was uh, hospitalized for the rest of her life. I mean, Roland, that's the most traumatizing thing. Yeah. I think, honestly, the most traumatizing yeah. thing I've ever heard. Did you just become so, was it such a horrible time in your life that you just dove into your career so you didn't have to think about well, it? Well, we were in Belgium, in, in the Brussels, Belgium, and so... I had to go through all the rigmarole of having the body shipped back and through the you know all the the, the funeral arrangements and I held up really good. I was 100 percent strong. I'd been through the military. I'd seen a little bit of carnage and death anyhow. But anyway, uh, so when I got back, I didn't have any problems with my, with the funeral. But it was Christmas, well, the first Christmas I did. I, that, that's when I had an emotional issue. But it strengthened me, yeah. But again, what I was trying to do was everybody still thought that I was wasting my life and not, not doing anything constructive because I wanted to become a fisherman. And then so this is the early 60s. By the time this, uh, mid-60s, by the time 70 rolled around, that's when Ray Scott started with the Bass Angler Sportsman Society, and that's when I really blossomed my career, and that's when things really fell into place. And that's the BASS that we all that's hear about. That's the BASS, Bass Angler Sportsman Society. It's kind of and a big deal. <laughs> it, it was the only deal at the time. Now there's the FLW, and there's a couple other uh, big big tournament organizations as well. But at the time, BASS was the thing, and it, it still is probably considered the most elite of the elite. And I set some records, and so... And even even as we speak, uh, there's some records that are that are still standing that that I still own. And you won it 19 times. Well, and that was a record for a while. And then now uh, this guy Kevin Van Dam's come along. He's like <laughs> Who? 21 times. No, he's, just kidding. He's, like, he's, <laughs> he's one more. And then, uh, but still, still though, but that doesn't discredit 19 times a lot no, of times. It, and I, I was leading money winner for a while, and I had the most money. Then then Kevin beats me out of that. And then then I still have Angle of the Year titles and things like that. So I'm still doing all right. But <laughs> the, the point is, I saw Ray Scott's vision. And Ray would travel, would travel together doing seminars and things, and, and he would talk all about the, the future of the sport. And, and I really believed him. I mean, I mean and I did. And he, he predicted today. He, t- he predicted the results we see and the, the huge industry that it is. And not many people did. And it was hard to, hard to envision even a, the lowly bass boat that, that's now a $60,000 vehicle. You know, at the time, we had really... Uh, rudimentary boats, you know, little bitty, I don't know, 16-footers with 50 or 80 horsepower motors and things like that. And that's what we fished out of. And no live wheel system at first. And we we did all the thing now we revolve, uh, involved uh, catch and release. Yeah, I heard and, that you were instrumental in that in 1971. I was, yeah. I had, I had some, yeah. I had some uh, thoughts with that. I took an old Ranger boat one time and uh, doctored up uh, one of the storage compartments and and I came into the weigh-ins on several tournaments with live fish. 
And Forrest Wood came down and saw it. He said, how are you keeping these fish alive? <laughs> yeah. I said, well, I took one of the compartments and just you know put a bunch of pumps and stuff in here. And I'd hold it. Of course, they killed the fish anyhow. Yeah. But at least, at least I'd have them alive on the stringer. Why did that matter to you? I saw the uh, value of catch and release because sometimes I'd release them and catch them again. I'd catch one in the practice and come back in the tournament and catch one. So anyway, uh, I remember... Uh, I was in 1968. I caught an 11-pound, two-ounce bass off this little dam up on Santee Cooper, and I was with this guy, uh, and he was one of the top guides on the lake. And I said, you know, we're going to take pictures of this. Got a Polaroid camera and a 35 millimeter. I said, we're going to let this thing go. He said, what? Nobody lets a fish like that go. We eat it, and we give it away. We show everybody. I said, no, I'm going to let this 11-pound, two-ounce bass go. And it was 1968. Oh. Then we, I got down on on on. Okeechobee, Lake Okeechobee in 1971, and Jerry McKinnis was down there filming a the show, and I was with one of the Murray brothers, Billy Murray. Billy caught a 10-pound, 5-ounce bass. I caught a 10-pound, 4- or 5-ounce bass, and Jerry McKinnis didn't catch one quite that big, but he had a 9-pound bass. So we had three big bass. And in the show, we went with uh, Sammy Griffin, who owned the marina there at the at the corner. It's now Roll Martin's Marina, but that's beside the point. <laughs> but at the time, we'd never seen three monster bass, these are nine, ten pound bass, to be released. And so we made a big production out of it. And Jerry was on his show, said, well, I don't know if it's going to work. I've never done a big thing on releasing trophy bass. And so we all, at the at the close of the show, Sammy Griffin said, what are you going to do with those fish? And Jerry said, we're going to turn, turn them loose. And, and we all took our big bass out of the live well. We all put them in the water and they all swam away. Jerry got thousands of hate mail. Hate mail. People said, that's a sacrilege. You can't let big fish like that go. That's a trophy bass. It should be mounted or put on the wall or eaten. And, and, and it was just, that was the mindset in 1971. They did, people didn't release fish. It was just, it was, you're making a joke out of fishing when you'd release a bass in 1971. I mean, that was how bad it was. It took us from that mindset that you've almost cre- created a crime or committed a crime for, by releasing a trophy bass. It took us... <laughs> at least 10 years to get the general public to say, okay, maybe there is something for catch and release. It, it, it wasn't until about 1980 that catch and release had any kind of real, real strength. Places like Minnesota, everybody that ever went fishing would keep walleye. So why not keep all the bass? It wasn't until 1990 that Minnesota did a catch and release that was any significant thing. Everybody kept all the fish all the time, everywhere. Were you able to and, use your platform with television to help make this yeah, a thing? Yeah, that was that was a big part of it, that we could, you know, hold fish alive. And, and, and then also I got into the chemistry. Just simple table salt strengthens the uh, the slime coat. And the slime coat's, a, you know, it's like skin. It, it, it's a barrier uh, to keep the, the pathogens out and keep the bacterial infections away and the fungus and so on like that. So you got to be careful of not scraping the slime coat away. But by putting it in salt water... It promulgates slime, so more slime grows. And there's things like methylene blue, that's a gram-positive dye that kills all gram-positive bacteria. And so you see the, the blue and green in the water, that's mm-hmm. often uh, methylene blue or one of those uh, bactericides. And there's all kinds of things. There's, there's things like uh, also methylene blue. What it does, it enhances the, 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 the cell to, to assimilate more oxygen. So, so in in any kind of live well situation, you have an oxygen problem. You know, it's hard to keep a lot of fish alive. By putting in uh, methylene blue, it, the nucleus of the cell would absorb more oxygen, and it's a chemical process where they 
live longer and better with that methylene blue in the water. So there's a lot of there's a lot of really neat chemicals we can we can add to make catch and release work even better. And and when I was on top of all that. And then when I got into the marine operation at Okeechobee, a big part of the marine operation was live bait fishing, big live shiners. We'd catch a lot of trophy bass, a lot of six, eight, even ten pound bass at Lake Okeechobee. And we caught them on shiners. And and we had as many as twenty five guides all with shiners and catching just hundreds and hundreds of bass a day. And uh, we started that program. A lot of times people just have big old six or eight pound bass and they'd have them up on the filet board. And we, I went storming into the fish cleaning house one day and I just got upset. I said, what are you keeping these big fish for? This is what we're all fishing for and you're killing them. And, I, and so finally I just put a sign up on the, on the fish clean thing. I said, no bass over four pounds to be cleaned in this facility or you'll be thrown off property. And so every time they try to clean a big fish, which is four pounds, kind of a trophy bass, every time they try to keep a, or clean a, a bigger fish, you know, we just wouldn't let them do it. And then it got even, even lower. And then at the time, my, my wife at the time, was into that and so she just monitored you know you're cleaning big fish you gotta get out of here you can't do that <laughs> and so we really curtailed fish cleaning in general i mean you know we got it to the point where how many do you need you, you don't need to keep keep 30 fish and clean them why don't you just take two and throw the rest back so we really uh we really set a standard at the marina and and it was probably happening all over the country because by that time the tournament revolution was in full swing. Right. At that time, were you doing tournaments and television? Or Oh, yeah. Yeah, I started my television in 75, so I was doing tournaments at the same time. And, of course, I, in 80, I had the marina operation, and, and that was all swinging really good. In the mid-80s, I was in, on top of the totem pole with, with my wins and with my marina operation and with, with everything. I was really, you know, I was 40-something years old, and I was just really rocking. You was know. that self-driven, or did somebody pursue you for television or both? A little bit of both. Uh, one of the things that happened was there was a time in the early 70s when I started working for Lawrence Electronics because Carl Lawrence had, had met me and seen this new invention I had for part of my pattern deal was telling the clarity of water, and I invented this water clarity meter, and I patented it. It didn't ever go anywhere, and they were going to have a big Lawrence water clarity meter by rolling, and it, it, it kind of failed. It didn't really go anywhere. But the, they, they hired me, and so... While I was working for Lawrence Electronics, I, I developed their curvilinear graph, which is a flasher on the right and a graph paper uh, printout on the left. And I developed their uh, thermometer, their, their, one of their dash in, in, in dash thermometers, and I did a lot of things. Plus, I traveled around the country and I'd give seminars. We had a plane, a little Cessna, and we'd fly around. And I'd like the, all the local clubs in Tulsa and 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 in Texas and in Kansas and all those places were you know fairly close by. I would do a lot of seminars, and I would. My instruction was how to read a pattern, and how to read a depth finder. You know how to how to how to use the equipment. You know that was Lawrence, and so and so that's when I started. My t- and part of that thing was doing a film library. For, for, for Lawrence. They said, we need to get bass films out on the library. So we got Glenn Lau and Homer Circle and all my buddies, and we were doing bass show, bass films with, uh, you know, how to catch bass, how to use the depth finders, how to do this. And so that that kind of gave me a deal, and by the time 74 rolled around, I said, heck, I can, I've done so many films and stuff, I think I might try my own film deal. And so I started really to organize my own television series in 74, and by the time 75 rolled around, I had a season. I had I had... Had it running.
knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Now, is this before, when I think of you, I always think of Jimmy Houston, Johnny Morris, Bill Dance. Yeah, well, I was right in the middle of all that. Uh, Actually, Jimmy and Bill started just a year or two before I did on the tournament trail. And by the time I came along in 70, they'd both started in 67 or 68, both both Bill and, 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 and Jimmy. And by the time I came along, Bill was really the top fisherman in the country at that time. And it took me a couple of years, and I kind of caught up with him as far as statistics went, winning tournaments and monies and stuff like that. And so by about 1975, Bill had, I don't know, he just decided to retire. I don't know when it was, 75 or 76 or something like that, maybe a little later. It wasn't too much later. He just said, I'm not going to fish tournaments anymore. So he, he quit tournament fishing. Of course, Jimmy stayed with tournaments, and even today fishes a high level of tournaments. He fishes the FLW circuit, which is a high professional circuit. And uh, so Jimmy's actually the nation's longest fishing t- touring pro, you might say. You know, And then I'd be up there too. I'd be in the top five or ten. You know, I, I started in 70. And then when I started, of course, uh, I set – a new standard as far as you know winning stuff and stuff like that that's that's where really my career blossomed but i always used the tournament format i always used the tournament success as a springboard to just get other things going that television was the perfect example i'd come here like we're at the icast show now and every year back in the early 70s i'd come to the icast i'd been going to the icast show with the lawrence electronics so i knew a little bit about the ICAST show because I'd already attended several of them up in the McCormick place up in Chicago. That was where they all were for years and years. We'd go there and we'd have zero budget. You know, we'd say, if we don't get like $100,000 worth of advertisers, I'm going to go back to the Army or something. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm were, gonna, <laughs> were you, were, was there lots of money in, in tournaments back then? Well, the first ones I'd win were five or 10000 and then it got to be twenty or 30000 and then I won some tournaments that were like a hundred thousand, but now there's a lot of tournaments that are hundred thousand, two hundred thousand. There's a lot of a lot of bigger tournaments. Can I ask you something personal? Uh-huh. I read on the internet that in two thousand four you won over a million dollars in tournaments. Does that sound oh, yeah. right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, but there's a whole bunch of people that have won over a million. Yeah, there's but, probably thirty, forty guys that have over a million dollars. But to win a million dollars, do you? How much money do you have to put out? Well, a million dollars in the career, not just at a time. We didn't ever win that much money. Well, there was one tournament one time. One guy did win a million dollars one time about 10 years ago. They had a million-dollar tournament. I didn't fish that tournament. But But, but if you look at your books, you're not putting more money out than you're bringing in. Is that right? I was making money. Absolutely. Like my son Scott right now, 
Uh, he's following in, in my footsteps and making his own footsteps. He does his own thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, he's won almost $3 million. He's one of the highest paid guys in tournaments, right? He is. That's amazing. And you have to understand, Roland, like as a fly angler, that's totally alien to me. Well, see, here's the thing. I love fly fishing. And and I've built my own fly reels that I've competed in, in like the Gold Cup tarpon tournaments and come in second a couple times. And I've done really well. I tie my own flies. I tie my own leaders. I build rods. I've done all that with fly fishing. And I love it. But there's no money in it. I can't, I can't make it pay other than just having a, a, a really neat sport. And, and, and you fish a great big gold, gold cup fly tournament, and, and all you'd win is a few, maybe a reel and a rod and maybe some artwork, you know, <laughs> worth $1,000. <laughs> and you spent $3,000 on the guide and yeah. everything else for the week. So it's a losing proposition when you fish those big fly tournaments. But it's, it's fun, and there's a lot of status to it. And, and I've met some really good fly fishermen, guys like Andy Mills and, yeah. and, 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 and all these really, really cool guys. And, and back when Billy Pate was alive, he was the champion tarpon guy. And so everybody had asked me, well, Roland, what kind of fly do you have? Oh, this is one of Billy Pate's flies. What kind of knot is that? That's a Billy Pate knot. What kind of a leader? That's a Billy Pate. Everything was Billy Pate. I'd go over and just bother him. I'd go over to his house like every day. Hey, Billy, what are you doing? And just kind of hang around, pester him all the time. Well, he'd take me fishing and everything. So uh, we, I, really, I really worked Billy over, boy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but so bring me back to Bill Dance and stuff. So you're going to ICAST, and I'm, I'm looking at, I'm watching your career grow. So you're winning tournaments, you're making money that way, you're doing television, right. you're getting sponsors for television. Sure. And, and then where does your timeline lead you? Well, um, the Marina deal became a big, big thing uh, starting in 1980. Do you and, mean you own a Marina? I'm sorry, this is one thing well, I do yeah, know. Yeah, I had a real big, giant Marina, and 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 finally in 1998 or 1999 I got a divorce from my first wife and I thought that television was on the upswing at the time it was really going good you're on big channels you still I was are on, on big, big channels, channels but the thing is it hadn't got into the dish satellite system at that point it was just being distributed through a cable system and through you know that kind of that kind of deal, and it was really big. We had million household broadcasts. We had we were really in big stations. I was working with people like the Nashville Network at the time, which is now Spike. It just all changed, but at the time I had some really big broadcast channels, and I was making really big money. I was W two and an insane amount of money, really. I mean, I don't even want to tell you how much it was. Just a lot more than I'm making now. Sure, sure. <laughs> and so I thought. Getting the divorce in '98, that television was going to go through the roof, and I was going to be a multi multi millionaire. And so I gave up a lot of my interest in the marina, which was a seven million dollar thing at the time, and I gave more or less gave it away so I could retain the, all my interest in the television. Well, television's all right; it makes a, a living, but it in no way it kind of went downhill. <clears throat> you know, television's going downhill, and so it's not worth say, the $7 million that the marina's worth. <laughs> right. Is that marina still? Oh, yeah. Show? still the, the big, giant marina, Roland Martin's marina. It's right there in Cluiston. I had it set up where my son Scott has interest in it. My daughter, Laura, who's 30-something years old, she's, uh, she runs a big uh, restaurant part and a bar part. She has a degree in uh, hotel management from the University of Florida, so she's, she, she's doing a great job. And my son, uh, uh, of course, he's, he's setting every record in the world. 
and he's he doesn't really don't run the marina so much because he's on the road with it with his uh, YouTube. He's one of the most U- successful YouTube guys right now. Yeah, I need to sit down. Three hundred thousand subscribers and all that. He just really does good. In fact, with the younger generation, what's so funny? You know, everybody knows me, Rolamar, and I'm some kind of an icon for the older generation. But the young kids come up. 12-year-old kids, and they'll say, Roland Martin, they'll look at me kind of dumb-like, and <laughs> they don't know what that is. And I'll say, oh, I'm Scott Martin's dad. Oh, and their eyes light up. Oh, yeah, I know who you are. You're Scott Martin. Yeah, I watch you on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, so that's, a, that's the other side of the coin right now. And I have my advertisers in television are all telling me, and a couple years ago, a couple of them told me, real point blank. They said, Roland, this social media is a big deal. You're going to have to get better numbers on all on all the the forms of social media, and and I struggled with it for about a year. Didn't get very far, and finally they just gave me a wake up call. This one, two of them said, "Listen, if you don't do better, we, well, we're just going to have to redo this contract. You're, you're not, it's not good enough." So I really made a big push this last year or so. All my numbers are up. My fish brain's really That's, kicking off. Just so people know, this is how, you know, yeah. this is all actually how this all came to be because we right. both do some work with fish brain. You're super popular on there. Well, I actually have the, the biggest uh, number of, of followers now and I have the biggest posts that, that have been. So I'm really successful. And I, I kind of have a format of doing that. And I kind of tell the, uh, the, the guys that are watching the fish brain how to do it as well. And because I, I have a pattern approach and because I talk about the exact set of water and cover conditions and because I tell them things and explain the patterns, I'm very popular. They like that. They like that information. And so that's kind of my my moniker is is, is an instruction like I'm an instructor. I, and even on the, fish, on the Facebooks and things like that I do and the YouTube that I'm working with now, I got that going fairly good. It's kind of kicking off. I'm a... And I'm telling everybody, hey, hey, don't cut my contract this year. Just watch. <laughs> Next year, I'm going to really have a deal going. I'm going to have double numbers. And, and I am. I'm really, I'm really increasing my numbers. But and now so, with so many people who can see you on the internet, do you find that the waterways are getting busier? No, it's funny. In fact, on the fish brain, here's funny. There's a there's part of the premium app. You could get the premium app, and you could and it gives you a map. You push the button, and you can see where that photograph was taken. And I have 150 posts or more than that. And about 140 of them, it shows the spot, the exact spot where I caught the fish. You let you, because you can turn put that it right on. Off, I put it right it. on there and I figured, oh, it's going to get crowded. I've been to all those spots again. I've never seen anybody from <gasps> fish. I don't know why they don't, they don't take advantage of it. Let's keep but it that way for you. You'd think, you'd think <laughs> that they would just all swarm in on these places like at Okeechobee and other spots I fish. But they aren't really, it's not really an issue. Let's keep it that way. Yeah. Um, Roland, so what do you do now with Build Ant? What's this T, what's the T3, T3? Well, yeah, that's the uh, yeah, the Three Legends group. It's it's Bill Dance and Jimmy Houston and I. And uh, we had uh, a, a corporation, and it's it's we sell a number of things like Booyah Clean products for washing boats. That's a big a big deal. We sell some bur- beef jerky. We have some gloves. We have a couple other things. You know, we're just kind of, well, we're st- we're not exactly struggling. I wish we had more products, but but we have a few products, yeah. And we're and hopefully we we'll get more. Well, uh, I can't see you yeah. guys, but but don't you have to slow down at some point? Like, what do you still work because you want to work? You seem like you really love what you do. Well, I'm a high energy person. Doesn't look like it, and I kind of speak slowly in a southern accent. And you think, and I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I do have 
pretty good work ethics. And I get out there early in the morning, and I do fish really hard. And they call me the Iron Man. My son does. Yeah. <laughs> when, when I get out there on a fishing trip for three or four days with Scott, about the third or fourth day, I got him panting. I got his tongue hanging out. Dad, how do you do it? I'm getting up early in the morning, fishing late at night, you know, just all that. And I have the ability to uh, recuperate. In fact, when I get really tired, like in the afternoon, I might just take a 10-minute nap. Mm-hmm. My mother used to do that. She was real busy with the PTA president. She was, ran a drama guild, and she taught school, and she did all these things, civic uh, women's club things. And every afternoon, it was like Thomas Edison. She used to talk about Thomas Edison doing that. He'd take two or three little 10-minute naps. Cat naps. Little cat naps. It would revitalize them for the next couple hours. And mom did that. And I can do that. I can sit there. I can, I can just go over in the corner right now and sleep for 10 minutes and get, get up like I'm a raging bear, ready to go. When you took your 12-year hiatus, were you tired, burnt out? Why did you stop for so long? Everybody said, well, you ought to retire. You know, you've, done, you've set all these records. Why don't you just quit while you're ahead? The thing is, everybody that retired, like Bill Dance retired when he was ahead. Okay. Right. Hank okay. Parker retires when he's ahead. They all had the thing. They see the top of their pinnacle of their career, and they're going to retire so that they're remembered as the, they don't see, see him as a failure. Yeah. <laughs> well, I said, what is that? I'm, that's just vanity. I mean, I, I mean, I don't care if somebody thinks that, I, okay, I'm, I'm 78 years old, and, and I don't fish as good as I was when I was 40, and I'm not winning all the tournaments either, but I'm still fishing. Uh-huh. And I don't, I don't get embarrassed, and, and I don't... <laughs> You know, it's just like it's it's just like my wife now. When I do television, we always have the women catch either the big fish or the most fish for the day. On purpose, you guys on do purpose. That? We'll, well, we'll we'll leave out fish. We'll we'll, we'll make it happen on the editing table. We'll, we'll make wh- it why? happen that they do really well. We have the women do every bit as well as the guys. Why? It, it 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 just it helps numbers. People, the women go crazy when they see my wife catching as many fish as I do. They think it's the greatest thing in the world, and so I don't have any problem with that. I don't have any. I'm so secure oh, with myself that I don't let anybody intimidate me. The fact that my wife catches a bigger fish or more fish that doesn't bother me, or anybody else catches more fish or bigger fish. It doesn't. I'm not devastated that I didn't win the tournament. Yeah, and so. You know, I, I'm secure with my myself and my abilities, and so I can take defeat. Yeah. And, it, it, and it's not easy. A lot of people, everybody can take success. Not many, not many people can graciously take defeat. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. So, has that brought us up to your career today? Are we caught up? Pretty on much. This? Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm still doing a few tournaments. I, there's one little kind of dream. It's a dream of of coming back. And, and here I'm 78, and by next year I'll be 79, and I may or may not be qualified to fish the elite again, which I retired from. And I, I, two years ago, I would I could have come back and fished the that's the highest level tournament circuit, and it's a qualifying thing. And I could have fished it. I didn't have the the backing, and I didn't I hadn't gone to uh, to Johnny Morris at the time. I've since now gone to Johnny Morris and said, if I have an opening again. Will you support me? Like I said, it's like an eighty thousand dollar commitment. It's like a lot of money, and and they they said yes, we'll support you. So I have sponsorship now. I, you know, I have I have a, a, a someone that would support me in the in the in the effort. Whether I'll do it or not, I don't know. My wife's dead against it. She says you're an old guy. Nobody's that age ever competing on that level of 
of competition and that you'll be gone all the time and it's going to be hard for you to do the film work, blah, blah, blah. There's a million reasons why not to do to do it. But I still would like to do it. Well, then and you, so sh- you should. Maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't. <laughs> that's, just, that's just our goal of mine. It's a dream that to go back and then... And then win the classic in the process, and that's all a big dream. But you know, hey, hey, why not have dreams? I don't care how old you are, have some kind of goal, have some kind of dream. Well, it's keeping you young, so you, it. you're doing something right. Yeah. How is it a young man's sport? Is it because you're on your feet all day, or you're traveling all day? It's really not a young man's sport. If you're in good, if you're in good health and good shape, it's not a young man's sport. I mean, I, I've proven that. And there's twenty, thirty other guys that are in their fifties and maybe sixties that, that prove that yeah, it's not just a young man's sport. If you're in good enough shape and health, you can fish for a long time. I'm Will Cooper, host of Huntstand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.